the military, let alone the Air Force, but the military as a whole, it's a male-dominated field. It's a male-oriented type of uh, field that people go into. And especially communications or cybers, you know, you think about these guys that sit in dark rooms that have these headphones on and that are, you know, that have all these screens around them. And then you can imagine me <laughs> in a room filled of them just, you know, I felt like I had to earn my place. I had to earn my right. I was just as tough as you guys. I heard, you know, work just as hard as you guys. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 119 of the Assyrian Podcast. It's Ninorta here, and I am super excited to bring you another story this week. In September of 2019, I remember seeing an article circulate around Facebook from Luke Air Force Base, and the title really captured my attention. It read, Refugee to Airmen. The article was featuring an Assyrian woman in the Air Force, Master Sergeant Oded Ishu. And I had the pleasure of meeting Odette at a woman's event here in Arizona, and her story was truly captivating. Odette's story starts in Iraq, where she and her family had to flee and settle as refugees in Turkey. We got to talk about her father's role in the Iraqi military and how her decision to join the Air Force was a way for her to follow in her father and brother's footsteps and give back to society. We also discussed how the Air Force is different from the other military branches, whereas their motto is, Mission first, family always. Now, the Air Force has 20.9% females, and of that 20.9%, only 5.2% are in cyber or the communications field. And Odette is defying the odds in her male-dominated field in cyber operations as operations flight chief. We also get to hear about her deployment in Afghanistan and how she overcame a difficult period in her life. Before we get to this interview, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you're listening. Also, if you know someone who should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find out more information about nominating future guests on our website. Lastly, the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Calagracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Calagracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyer Publications and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or at 847-982-9516. And now, here is Master Sergeant Odette Ishu. Can you start off by telling us about your life in Baghdad. I know you were born there, your family. Yes, ma'am. Well, first off, Bassem Saraba for giving me this opportunity to, to get to share my experience and hopefully inspire and motivate and just be connected with everybody around the world. As you said, I was born in Iraq. We This was towards the end of the Iraq-Iran war. Turkey. So can you tell me about that and why you you guys had to leave? Well, we had to leave um, because Saddam saw the ethnic minorities as a threat to his country. 
specifically the Assyrians, the Christians, he felt as if that they were going to partner up with the Westerns, that being America and NATO allies to oust him as the president, more so as a dictator. Mm -hmm. My father and mother wanting a better life for all of his kids and not wanting the, them to have the same future, he decided that it would be best to pretty much Mm -hmm. And by that, it meant essentially traveling by night and during the day hiding mm -hmm. wherever we could seek refuge. Sometimes it would be in fellow Assyrian homes that would let us stay there for a little bit and then again, wake up the next uh, in the evening, travel to the next neighboring village up until we made it to the refugee camp. We had to have our hair cut incredibly short because of the fear of disease and lice and different things that we had to deal with. Can you like, expand a little bit on that? A mm -hmm. little bit? How long were you, were you there? For about two and a half years. Okay, and were you, did you have family there? Where were you staying? Yes, ma'am, so we stayed in, uh, they call it Gokampa. I had my mom. My in, the, in the refugee camps? Yes, ma'am. Yep. It was a big green tent um, for the first few, for, for a good good while. And then towards the end, uh, we did get to live into that dormitory style hardened facility. But for a considerable amount of time, it was a green tent that we called home. Uh, when we made it to the border, they took our father away from us. And not knowing the language, there was a different, you know, language barrier between us and the uh, Jandirma. We didn't get to see our father for another two and a half weeks or whatever have you. And most of the men that were taken away really don't talk about what happened there, but they were sent to their own different type of detention camp and um, just trying to see if they were trying to infiltrate Turkey or if they were trying to be, um, bring guerrilla warfare or any type of, you know, harm or ill intentions towards their country. And it just also didn't help that we were Suraya trying to escape Iraq and going into another predominantly Islamic country. So then, uh, you know, lucky enough, we finally got our dad back and um, my mom would make clothes with what was donated to us. So all of our julad, gimme khatallah, she cut our hair too, which may have not been the cutest, but it was because of the fear of lice and disease and just whatever you could think that could happen wrong may have potentially happened to other people there. And what compelled those at the refugee camp, if you will, governing that area was because of my dad's story. Essentially, we had no choice of going back. I mean, mm -hmm. it was either Turkey or it was just it. I said, mm -hmm. um, because what of, was what was his uh, title in the army? Good question. So my dad said but it was for the commandos. So that is like our equivalent of our special forces here mm -hmm. in the um, American military. Mm -hmm. So you you said that he because of your dad's story. Can because you tell me dad, about that? Yeah, they were compelled to help my father find a home. It was actually three countries at the time. It was America, Canada, and Australia that were uh, allowing refugees to enter in their country. My mom and dad both wanted America. That was their number one pick. And they interviewed and they kind of bumped us up in the line, if you will, um, because of what he's been through. 
and the interview process was very thorough uh, in depth. They wanted to make sure that whether it, he be in Turkey or to go to America, that they were not going to try to, I guess, be homegrown terrorist or have other than uh, the intent that they made evident. They just want to seek uh, asylum and refuge in a country that will allow, allow them to practice their religion and not be forced to join a military and be turned against. Very thorough. It was very in-depth, uh, fingerprints, swabs, you name it, um, going through the interviews and everything like that that my parents had to go through to then finally being told after two and a half years, and this is a, if you will, fast track for two and a half years, um, to finally get picked up by America. Mm -hmm. And from there, our journey really began. Um, flew to Germany and from Germany to New York and to New York, Chicago, which it's been home ever since I left, packed up my bags to go to the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Do you remember much of it? So I don't remember much of Iraq, but I do remember Turkey, bits and pieces, big memories. I remember waiting in line with my older sister to get blankets and to get like food accommodations and things of that nature. I remember when we lived in the Hardin facility uh, for a while, we lived in the tent and then we were able to move into kind of like a dormitory style module type rooms. But really it was because of my parents' endurance and strength and willingness, determination to come to America, wanting a better family, knowing that there wasn't a future or much less opportunity to develop and grow as Suraya in Iraq, our mm -hmm. ethnic homeland. So definitely the formative years were rough, especially by the time we made it to Turkey, still not wanted, still being discriminated against. And we had to meet with the IOM, which is the International Immigration Organization that helped us. And really it was my dad's story, him being a part of Saddam's military by force. And essentially we're not able to go back because we were seen as traitors after the war. And you know when America started to invade Iraq, the Kuwaiti invasion and Desert Storm, Desert Shield, all of that. So it's definitely not a good time, nor did mm -hmm. we ever have the chance to go back. We applied to come to America and we, we had the opportunity to come here. And I guess, you know, if you, if you will, the rest was history. So that was from 1993 when uh, we, we came to America, actually June of 93, when we came to America. Pretty young, I started kindergarten here. Going to school in inner city Chicago was definitely rough. It wasn't the best of conditions, but that's all we could afford. My dad, uh, we lived in a two bedroom apartment. My dad worked three jobs. Mom worked, you know, two jobs essentially, you know, being a mother full time and then working, um, you know, my kind of like when my dad was at work, she was at home and having a mm -hmm. different schedule just to provide for food and roof over our head. And it wasn't until I was about 11 years old when we moved to the suburbs. And mind you, all along, like we were always, we were raised with this, never forgetting where you came from, always being raised in the church and always being so centered and close to the faith, the culture and mm -hmm. Just staying well grounded, you know, we were never very, uh, I guess, polarized one way or another into Iraq was bad. This is what happened to us. Now we're here and 
it was just the fondness of what they used to know and now all the opportunities. We moved to the suburbs, graduated from high school. A little bit after, um, this was around the time when uh, America invaded Iraq and um, shortly after 9-11, I was still in high school. Um, well, when 9-11 happened, I was actually in eighth grade. And then when I was in high school, I was just very interested in politics. I was very interested in the Middle Eastern culture, um, what was going on. Definitely figured that I had a yearning to understand where we came from. Why did it become like that? Why was it so polarized into becoming this like radical um, Islamic state and um, really finding an identity for ourselves, ethnic homeland and being raised in America, but yet having these traditional values and upbringing. And I always wanted to give back. I always wanted to kind of be the quote unquote, not stereotypical Assyrian. I wanted to do something completely different. Nobody sought, sought out to do something like that. I was like, you know, I am going to graduate high school. And it wasn't much longer after high school, my brother went into the Air Force basic training and we flew down to San Antonio to, for his graduation. And this was back in 2008. And just seeing the changes that he went through, it was, it, it, it was awesome. It really was. I mean, he went in as this... Uh, you know, civilian, if you will, and the changes that they made. I was like, I want that. This is how I'm going to change. What changes did you see in him? He was more so um, game oriented, more so, you know, a, a kid that grew up from, you know, experiencing high school to now living in this adult world and kind of trying to figure out like work life, college, and still trying to kind of join the the workforce, but still I guess life really happens fast after you graduate high school. And so you kind of have to figure it out for yourself. And mm -hmm. it was just, you know, he was just very used to his own routine, his friends, his, his work. And this was just something that, and even when he was young, he also wanted to fit, um, follow my father's footsteps. Mind you, not joining the Iraqi military, but yeah. in a way of like, you know, continuing the legacy of serving your country. And our older sister, actually, when we, at that point, we lived in Arizona. There was a recruiter that wasn't too far away from where we lived. And she was just kind of like, you know, I've heard great things about the Air Force. And mind you, uh, things in the Middle East were incredibly bad because he went to different recruiters. He went to the Marines. He went to the Army just to see what opportunities were out there. And they're like, yeah, yeah, come in. You know, we're going to infantry, you're going to be on the front line, you're going to do all these uh, uh, amazing things, if you will. But he was hesitant, and definitely my parents were, because and they did not want to send their only son off to war, and especially one conversation I remembered my father had with him was that, you know, I left Iraq because of this. Why are you running towards it? Why are you going back to that country that we ran away from? So back to thinking he went. Um and it was, again, my older sister that was like, hey, you should think about the Air Force. Um, you know, you rarely hear them uh, out and about. And he went to uh, the recruiter. And definitely the Air Force was incredibly different. Um, it's very difficult to get into. You have to have um, high aptitude battery skills, um, which is the, the test that regardless of what military branch you, you join, um, you all take the same test. So for that, they had a... Uh, 
certain thresholds. So, um, and they're um, education focused. Um, they had different career fields that were foreign to other services. And I mean, it just seemed like this was this was for him. It was about a year and a half. That's what kind of made him join really was just, you know, graduated high school. What should I do now? And my parents were not all for him joining, um, regardless of what branch. But it wasn't in truly until we went into San Antonio, saw him graduate, where my parents felt like their heart was at ease. It, it was just a complete different big brother. We were all so very proud of him. And I was like, I want that. Like, so little did my parents know before we flew to San Antonio, I had called some recruiters um, just to kind of show interest in them. And then by the time we flew back, I actually got a call from a different recruiter still in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And, um, I, you know, told her I have a brother that's in and I want to join and um, kind of similar thing. You take the test and you get five different options. And I remember like, well, you know, I remember taking a computer class when I was in high school and I did not find my exact my job until I was in basic training towards the end of graduation is where they tell you this is what you're getting selected for. This is where you're going. This is how long your technical training is. So I really did get lucky. And at that time, it was uh, when I when I joined, it was November 2009. That's when I went to San Antonio for basic training. I was at Lackland Air Force Base. The test that you take, it essentially kind of takes your skill set into consideration and, and your knowledge throughout the years and kind of directs you in what career path you should go into. Yes, so ma'am. Absolutely. So definitely... It does that. And then it also takes in, into consideration if you've completed any college courses. So if you've completed any college courses, you get higher uh, ranking when you enlist. That's what I decided to do. So you have two different career paths, whether you go enlisted or you become an officer. I decided to go enlisted because I did not complete my degree at that time. And I became an E3. So because of however many college credits I did have mm -hmm. versus um, no college credits, you were E1. But you had an option of like, hey, I want these jobs. But because of your scores, because of the aptitude and because of what the Air Force needed at that time, they would put you, as you exactly mentioned, where they feel that it would be best based off of your skill set and your experience mm -hmm. and what. They need. So for me, it was. Um, uh, cyber operations. So can you can you tell them like, um, I don't like this field. Can I switch to a different one? You can, um, <laughs> but it doesn't always work out in that in that way. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you you mentioned that like the Air Force is different in in that sense. In, yes, ma'am. Like different from like the Army, the Marines. Why is the Air Force different in that way? Um, they are more intellectually driven. Um, they are more uh, focused on education, academics, more on the intellectual competencies, whereas in what you'll find with the Army and the Marines is very um, hands-on, it's very rigorous, it's very, in a sense, more so they're the front lines, they're the ones that are out there doing the uh, frontline defense, doing the first in, first out, laying the foundation. Whereas in the Air Force, it's all about uh, strategic advances. It's all about discipline and 
like synergistic things. How do we win the war, if you will, intellectually? What are some advances that we can make into gaining air superiority over these areas, whether it be on land, ground, sea, whatever have you? Those are the types of capacities that the Air Force would would have and that it was kind of like, oh, I mean, this is, mm-hmm. I think I could do this. You know, I think this mm-hmm. is, you know, interesting um, to me. And not that's not to say that the other branches did not have those capacities, but the Air Force is really big on those, um, those types of things mm-hmm. that they really, and um, we definitely do have uh, our special forces that are equivalent to like, you know, the Army Green Beret, things of that nature. But it was really the academic drive. They were very focused on developing you as a professional, developing you as this um, warrior, if you will, that you're guarding your country. And yet, you know, you by the time you retire or separate or whatever have you, you, you have your education because there's a big push and a drive for that. And mm-hmm you know, you always have something to fall back on because your degree or your your career is uh, transferable to the civilian. Whereas and I felt different branches, like if you're an infantry or whatever have you, might not necessarily translate well back mm-hmm. into civilian life. That's interesting that that the Air Force offers that versus, you know, the, the Army or the Marines or the, or the Navy in a sense where if you do choose to retire or leave the Air Force, you can you still have your education to fall back on and kind of pursue a, a, a career or you know have a family whatever it is that that you're looking for absolutely um, the air force has this thing where we say mission first which means you know above all everything the mission will come first your job what you are tasked to do but it, it also says family always so i love that it is mission first family always you mentioned that so after you took the test, you got into... Yes, ma'am. Cyber operations. What that means is uh, technology management, a little bit of information management, whether it be protecting the Department of Defense uh, systems, networks, domains, controlling attacks, whether it be ethical or penetration to the system uh, at all times, whether it's we're here in garrison or we're downrange. Um, it could be telephones. It could be anything that you think that would connect you to the network. That is what we do to either fix, protect, or to try to penetrate into um, different entities, like to their system to, you know, protect ours and just to kind of be more focused towards technology protection. And uh, really, it's, you know, where the entire world is going. So it's kind of something that grew on me. It wasn't something that I um, definitely picked for myself, but they were like, you would be great at this. And what was the timeline? So after you graduated high school until now that you're a master sergeant, what's been the timeline? So for me, I think this is a big part of how all Assyrians grew up. You were, you were raised with this like you're going to be academically driven, you're going to be strong, you're going to be independent, you are never going to forget where you came from, and you're going to have strong ties to the culture. So what really drove me was when I graduated high school, this was in 2006, I joined the military in 2009. So I was about 21, I had a little bit of college credits. So I went in as an E3. I graduated basic training in December of 2009. And we uh, basically got shipped. So from Texas, we got shipped to Mississippi. That was where my technical training was at. 
was there until April of 2010, so it was for four months. And then my very first duty assignment was at the National Security Agency, the Texas Cryptologic Center. So essentially, what does that mean? I went back to uh, Texas and I was working for NSA at the time, which was truly an amazing um, community. And it was dealing with intelligence, you know, whether it be counterintelligence or human intelligence or Again, where I fit into the picture is the cyber aspect of it, protecting our systems, our domains, and um, making sure that we have clear communication with those that we're trying to work with. So I was there for about four and a half years. I then got transferred to Colorado. From Colorado, I got transferred to Arizona. And from Arizona, I am now here in Mississippi. And you could say, so now uh, this November will mark my 11th year in the service. Wow. Yes. Yes, ma'am. So I tested whenever I was eligible to test for the rank progression. I made it every time the first time. So when I tested for E5, which we call our staff sergeant, I studied really hard. I studied, you know, because it's a the military, let alone the Air Force, but the military as a whole, it's a male-dominated field. It's a male-oriented type of uh, field that people go into. And especially communications or cybers, you know, you think about these guys that sit in dark rooms that have these headphones on and that are, you know, that have all these screens around them. And then you can imagine me <laughs> in a room filled of them just, you know, I felt like I had to earn my place. I had to earn my right. I was just as tough as you guys. I heard, you know, work just as hard as you guys. And, um, and it was just that resiliency that I was raised with that my parents instilled in me and my siblings at a young age that right after I left work, I went home and I, it was either I was in school or I was studying. I made E5 my first time, uh, which is staff sergeant. I made E6 my first time, which is technical sergeant. And I made E7 my first time, which is master sergeant. All of those, regardless of what branch you're in, is incredibly difficult to make your first time. It really is. And um, so people would be like, okay, how long have you been in? And I tell them 10 years. And they're like, you're already in E7. That's unheard of. And it's just, you know, that feel good because it's like everything that I've been through, all the struggles, the, you know, the the long nights and the long days, it was all worth it in the end. And mm -hmm. it's just satisfaction of knowing I, I got my degree. I'm, you know, made master and I'm still pursuing my dream and making myself proud, my family proud. And I, I just, I feel like I am truly best. Mm -hmm. So let, let me, let's go back to your family. What was their, what were your parents' first thoughts when you said that you wanted to enlist in the Air Force? Um, truth be told, they thought I was, <laughs> um, if not crazy, close to it because, you know, now they, both of their middle kids, there's four of us. So older sister, then my brother left and then I left. So they were just left with our older sister and younger sister. And so the two middle kids decided to kind of. Join the Air Force. Yes. And then my mom was like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure that you can still, you know, come home? And I was like, no, I want to do this. I want to do something different, mom. And I always really, really loved the Syrian calling, really loved our culture, the music, everything. And I was like, this is how I'm going to give back. Mom. This is how I'm going to raise awareness about our people. And I was like, mom, how many Suraya, and especially like Nathe, do you know that joined the military, that joined the Air Force? And 
I just, I, I wanted it more than anything. There was nothing that mom and dad could, you know, tell me that would make me change my mind. I was so determined and stubborn, which I believe I learned from my father, but yeah, they thought I was crazy. And it wasn't until my graduation that I had that similar experience to where I saw my brother graduating. My parents saw me graduating and they're like, yes, absolutely. This is for you at that just to from where I was before to where I was at when they saw me during my graduation. It's like mm-hmm. we were right in, you know, letting you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm sure they're very proud of you now of your your of your achievements. And parents at first are always very hesitant to let their kids go and, you know, joining joining any military field is 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 dangerous in the end. You just don't know the outcome. But I'm sure they're very proud of you right now. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Can you tell us what a typical day is like for you in the Air Force? Yes, ma'am. So a typical day is uh, we start our mornings at 0430. So um, in the morning, we would go to physical training. And that would consist of calisthenics, whether it be push-ups, sit-ups, different type of physical activity. And then you would run three miles every single day. Um, so imagine working out from, well, if you wake up at 4.30, you start working out at 5, 5 to 6, and then you get a little bit of time to get ready and then to go back to work. So it's immediately your day begins at 4.30 in the morning. You pack your uniform. You have your physical gear that you have to, which is a part of your uniform that you need information. And from there, you start your work day. You're in your regular, we call it um, OCP. So it's the uniform of their day. And you can expect, especially in my career field, you can expect to go home a little after five, if not 5.30, maybe six. It just depends on the mission, what's going on, or if computers are working, or if the network is down, up, that really dictates our schedule. To go more into the day without uh, being too specific, but it's essentially what you can imagine if you're working in type of uh, IT or cyber field, like if somebody calls him having an issue with et cetera, et cetera, or hey, I felt such and such records are being missed or somebody has access to something and we are, we're investigating it, whether it's we do it from our from our office, from our capabilities, or we have to go visit them on site. We um, are stationed here in Mississippi, but we support different locations in this region. So we go all throughout Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida to deliver those cyber capabilities. Can you tell us one of your biggest failures and what lessons did you learn from it and how did it contribute to greater success? Because anytime we fail, we obviously learn learn our lesson and then we kind of grow and, and make a little, little a little bit better. So can you tell us one of the one of those times that you you had to overcome one of your biggest failures? Yes, ma'am. That was in Colorado. I would say the biggest failure of mine was self-doubt, self-doubt, negativity that I would uh, instill upon myself. It was all intrinsic. I just kind of felt like what was the point, if you will. That was around the time when ISIS had. taken over um, Ninway and seeing everything that was going on with the Isdio uh, Suraye that I just felt kind of like felt powerless in a sense and I felt sad and depressed because here I am trying to bring awareness bring, bring plight to our people back home and I felt so defenseless that 
I couldn't do anything at that point to protect them, to save them, to let people know, hey, we're still here, we still exist. The, the biggest failure ultimately is because of those feelings that I had of, you know, uh, the being depressed over what was going on in Iraq. I just kind of grew into a shell. I really didn't become my like outgoing, cheery, bubbly mission, go-getter, like I'm going to do this, I'm going to, you know, go above and beyond and believe in what I do. It just became very um, kind of a technical, like I go to work and I come home and the biggest failure, honestly, was um, being negative, putting myself down and not really showcasing my potential. And I kind of lost touch with our community if you will, because of what was going on back home. And I felt like even with the Syrian community and diaspora, we kind of got um, divided and disconnected. Mm -hmm. And it really affected me personally. So I would say the the toll of what was going on back home and how I felt being a part of the service and fe feeling like I was alone and um, less than, if you will, because I felt like growing up, I had many, many challenges to overcome and for whatever reason, at that point in my life, it all came back in Colorado where I was just kind of feeling like, what is the point of this? What's going on back home? Is this what God wants me to do? Should I continue? I don't really feel good about myself. And I just kind of, I guess, uh, lessened myself, you know, whereas in I took my shine away from myself just because I felt unworthy. And that was definitely a hindrance on my part. So how did you over overcome that? When I requested to be transferred to Arizona. Okay. So closer to family. Yes, ma'am. Closer to family. And it kind of was where the circle began. I was able to go back because I joined the Air Force from Arizona. And I went back to Arizona to where it all started, if you will. And I was working at Luke Air Force Base, closer to family, closer to church, closer to friends, closer to faith. And it was just remembering, you know, being close to being close to home. Mm -hmm. It was the best thing that could ever happen to me because I felt like I was so lost and disconnected from everybody. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, you know, they allowed me to go to Arizona and it was the best thing that's ever happened to me because I felt like my career really was on a projectile, you know, a positive mm -hmm. projectile from there that I remembered who I was and I became, you know, and it wasn't a feeling of like, I wanted to return to the old of that, like, this is who I am now. I've been through all of these struggles and I'm happy that I experienced those low moments in Colorado because of what I was able to accomplish in Arizona that I and even here in Mississippi, it just continues to motivate me, it continues to catapult me to do better To Now that I'm in charge of many other airmen, that I have that ability to motivate them, to inspire them, to, you know, not let them feel lonely or down or depressed or anything like that. So it was really Arizona, my mm -hmm. family, being back home with Suraya and knowing that we aren't forgotten and that we had a thriving community really in Arizona. It was the best thing ever. And then 
when you would walk around or you'd be in church and you'd be like, oh, today is Surah Tzidkwaya Force. And I was like, absolutely, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) It was really awesome, you know, because even in the Assyrian community, we don't have that many people that join, let alone women that join the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And it was just a very proud moment. Have you ran into any Assyrians in the Air Force? Actually, I have. Um, Aside from... And of course, my brother that joined in a year and a half before me, I actually met another Assyrian. He was also in the cyber operations field. And oddly enough, he was also stationed in Arizona. We were at the same unit. His last name was also Isho, but with two O's. So it was just so like, it was so weird. (laughs) Have you seen any Assyrian females in, in the Air Force? I have. And it's only after you meet like one Assyrian member that you're like, okay, then I'm running into more of them, you know, because I was used to meeting like whether it be Amrikai or whatever have you. And um, Mm -hmm. yes, I ended up meeting another Suretha when I was in Colorado and she was a big part of my um, overcoming, you know, the sadness and depression because I was just kind of like, there's no other Assyrian that's doing what I'm doing. Should I get out? And I felt like God brought her into my life. And uh, I was really happy. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I know you were featured in an article. I think it was the Luke Air Force Base that had done the article. And I really liked the title of it. And it said, Refugee to Airman or Airwoman, right? Yes. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you were featured in this in this article? Yes, ma'am. I was, um, as you would say, just minding my own business, doing my job. One day I get called into my chief's office, which is our E7, uh, which if anybody that's listening that is also in the military, it's kind of a big deal. So if you're getting called into your E7's office, it's either you got in trouble or there's something that you really got to talk to talk to them about and I was like okay what did I do I didn't do anything but let's see and uh get called into his office he calls me by my first name he's like Odette do you know why you're here and I was like no sir not really sure why and he's like well tell me a little bit about your upbringing and then I'm like okay like (laughs) um so I begin to tell him I'm a Syrian ethnically um from the ethnic region of Iraq and was telling him about the homeland, Mesopotamia, and how we came to America and everything like that. And uh, he had told me our public affairs have heard about me. So word of mouth spread and that they wanted to meet with me. And he's like, I just want to make sure that that's okay with you. But I first wanted to get to know you. And uh, he said, after hearing your story, I, I think you should talk to them. So I met with our public affairs officer from, you know, once I got the approval from my chief to go and meet with them and just started asking questions and just trying to get to know people. And it was truly humbling because I didn't know. I mean, you're in a large base just doing your job. And then uh, I guess word spreads around like, hey, we have this person that's killing it in the communications field. And oh, by the way, she has this awesome story that I really believe the rest of us need to hear, the rest of the Air Force needs to hear. So even though the story was done here, or the interview was done at Luke, that was shared across the Air Force, that Mm -hmm. whole story. And it was phenomenal, 
truly humbling and truly inspiring for me. I was like, okay, this is, uh, people are starting to know who the Suraya are and uh, just bring awareness and just like, you know, how completely uh, wonderful and amazing these uh, Suraya are and that we're still here. And, you know, by the way, you can see us anywhere, whether it be in the military or, um, you know, in different type of um, facets. Mm-hmm. So that's how it. So that's how it, uh, it went. What's your official title? Because I know the last time we met at the women's event, it wasn't technical sergeant anymore. No, ma'am. So when I originally, you know, was working with you to have the honor to be, you know, one of the panel members, I um, shortly thereafter was selected to become a master sergeant. So in the Air Force, it's a senior NCO and senior non-commissioned officer. So now that I'm here in Mississippi, I'm in a different position, much higher ranking. It's the master sergeant. Well, we call it senior NCO, but really I'm a master sergeant E7 in the Air Force. And because I work in the cyber field, so I'm in the flight chief in charge of cyber operations. Have you ever been deployed to another country? Yes, I have been deployed. I have gone to Afghanistan from August 2011 through April 2012. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was a part of a joint counterintelligence unit where we essentially um, worked with the local nationals to kind of figure out the lay of the land and what's going on and help better protect the units, the different military branches that are out there and NATO allies on protecting the base and protecting people overall protecting the mission mm-hmm. from, wow. uh, of course al-qaeda taliban and some guerrilla units that were out there wow what was that experience like and that was your first time going overseas to to get deployed mm-hmm. so it's definitely not like what they show in the news or in the movies or anything like that it is very raw very visceral you see people that are living in clay huts it's just uh, truly eye-awakening. Although I've never been to Iraq, I've heard of Iraq. In comparison to what I've experienced in Afghanistan, it seems like Iraq was much more cleaner, which a little bit more advanced. But it definitely was not advanced um, as far as in uh, technology or healthcare or anything like that. But um, mm-hmm. because of being a Sureta, they thought I was an interpreter and uh, I was like, no, I'm not <laughs> because we did not wear our uniform because of our mission set, if you will. Ah. So I had that advantage going for me, I was able to blend in and um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was really my direct connection to the mission, seeing everything I was doing plan out, be planned out and actually happen and right there in front of my eyes. Um, humbling experience and it just made me fall in love with that much more and being in the service and being in the air force and it it was just a really really good experience it's awesome i'm sure it was very rewarding as well yes ma'am yep Mm -hmm. when i got back home we have our our awards and decorations and you necessarily will not be given a decoration for your time in combat or time in service so as an e4 or as a and senior airman, I came back with a commendation medal, a joint commendation medal. And that essentially means that I was receiving this medal, not just from the Air Force, but from all service branches. 
Oh, well, that's and amazing. It was, it was, and it's uh, unheard of for that young rank to receive that recognition and it being from across the um, sister branches. That's awesome. And I think a lot of people think like the Air Force is like, you know, the movie Top Gun, where you're just flying airplanes everywhere. Yeah. It's exactly but, like that, of course. Yes. That's exactly how it is, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, there's so many other different fields that you can go into. Like, and if you want to fly an airplane, exactly, go for it. Right? Go for it. Why not? Did you, actually, did you actually have to train for that, or I did not have to train for it. Um, one of the questions that they do ask you is if you're afraid of heights. So, <laughs> if you're interested in joining the Air Force and you kind of have a fear of heights, it's like we're not really sure if this might work out for you. But if I were to pursue my career and say I want to become a commission officer, I could become a pilot. Like if should I choose, I could become a fighter pilot. I could become a cargo pilot. I could become a helicopter pilot. Mm -hmm. But yes, ma'am, you you do have those opportunities, different types of aircraft mm -hmm. um, that you could fly. So does that depend on your ranking essentially? It depends on, um, so if I, I mean, because I am who I am, I want to become a fighter pilot, which is, the top 1%, very, very difficult to get into. If we say that we have 100 men, maybe um, one out of the 99 is a, is a woman. So oh, wow. it is incredibly difficult to get into. So it does go based off of your um, your scores, whether it be your undergraduate scores, your GPA, and it also gives, goes off of what we call the Air Force qualifying test, mm -hmm. officer qualifying test. So those scores and how well you do in the pilot training kind of determines which aircraft they feel you're, you would be best in. What personal message do you have for the new generation of Assyrians growing up today or anybody interested or thinking about joining any military branch or even the Air Force? I would say do not forget where you came from. And I don't mean that as in city or as in state. I mean, as in whether you are Suraya, Chaldean, we're all one. Don't forget the traditions, the values, the culture. Never lose sight of that in an effort to assimilate into the military. That is your uniqueness. That is what makes you you. And that is truly what makes you stand out amongst your peers. That is what I would say for the future generation that would consider joining the military. Never forget where you came from. Be proud of who you are and teach people about our culture. And it is just something that really is like my motivation and my drive. Like people are like, you know, how'd you rank up so fast or how'd you do this and how'd you do that? And it's like, you can't tell them, oh, well, because I'm a Syrian, that's why. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, everything that our parents raised us with, the values, moral, everything that I, that's what I would say for the future generations know who you are never change who you are do not try to assimilate stand out mm -hmm. make a name for yourself in a positive way and lastly what's one thing you would like to say to to our listeners and we have listeners worldwide i would say so all of our listeners worldwide regardless of where you stand on the assyrian spectrum if you will whether you truly believe in the cause or are you, hey, I'm living in a different country now, so I'm going to, in a sense, I forget who I am and be this westernized or whatever type of version. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, don't do it. <laughs> be Assyrian to your core. Be Chaldean to your core. Of course, adhere to the, the, the law and the structure and governance of those countries, but don't ever forget where you come from. I don't believe things are in the things in the Middle East are going to get better um, for the foreseeable future. I don't believe that we're going to be going back, if you will. We won't be having, oh, even though I hope, um, but because of those is why I say to the Assyrians around the world, you know, when we're raising future generations or even amongst yourselves, never forget who you are, never change who you are, pursue to get an education, remember why our parents, our grandparents, whomever we had, why they came into this country and stay clear of the negativity of the world and take care of yourself, whether it be health, spiritually, physically, academically, and just always think about the community, the Syrian community, and never forget where you came from. So that is my my biggest, you know, I guess I would say my biggest sense of like pride. Mm-hmm. That is one thing that I don't have with many other people, my uniqueness. So if there are any um, Suraya, whether they came from Iraq or any other country in the Middle East, consider joining the military. It does not have to be the Air Force, <laughs> but um, it really changes who you are for the for the better. Mm-hmm. I would say even if you're you know born here in America, consider or whatever country, consider giving back, be a mm-hmm. public servant. It really is kind of like a, an amazing feeling, an amazing calling, something that I go home with feeling a sense of satisfaction, feeling a sense of I'm doing something for my nation, for my culture, for my people. I don't feel like as if my efforts are frivolous or that I don't matter because they do, I do. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say is consider joining or being a productive member of society. (laughs) 